Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. This week's Lotto to Marathon winner is Adrian Jordan of Virginia Beach, Virginia. Adrian will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at LawAndOrderPodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Alex Beam, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership. And today we're looking at Law & Order Original Recipe, Season 13, Episode 4, Tragedy on Rye. So the possible time of death is somewhere between noon and one, three days ago. So a girl gets shot over a busy restaurant and no one hears anything? Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcasts, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. I prefer Pumpernickel myself, just for the record. For for tragedies. Yes. They should be I like on... my tragedies on Pumpernickel. All right. Or sourdough. Or sourdough. Or with, marble, with... for that matter. Oh, that's the... <laughs> yes. With some nice... Mu- with a little bit of mustard, it's fantastic. A little scooch. Yes. A little scooch. Rounding out our panel is our very special guest, author and Globe columnist, Ooh. Alex Beam. Hello, Alex. How do you do? Happy to be here. Legit journalist. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. This is so no, no, that's late digital nonsense, man. <laughs> I print on pulp. That's right. Hey, now you were the the Moscow bureau chief for Newsweek. Yeah, uh, for Business. Excuse week, me, for a long Business time Week. Ago. Right? Yes, I was. In fact, uh, a, a journalism fellow at Stanford and a longtime columnist with the Boston Globe. Shouldn't you be investigating graft instead of watching Law & Order like the rest of us? <laughs> I always took a break between four and six p.m. in my busy day. When uh, the TNT, you know, TNT used to have Law and Order in mm-hmm. the afternoons, and I, I've been in semi-permanent mourning ever since that situation <laughs> changed. But um, I even have an anecdote relating to that. My home was burgled one afternoon between four and six when I was in my basement watching Law and Order. No, yeah, and, like my wife has never let me forget That's it. Commitment. That yeah. must have been a really good episode. You must have been really into They're it. They're all really good. Okay, give me a break. Wait, this is before surround sounds like. Somebody broke a window. This is a really good episode. <laughs> they mix this well. Man, I am the object of so much mockery in my house for, for that and for other reasons, of course. You know, Alex, great novels are often based on real-life events. We've got like Peyton Place, Psycho, The Godfather, Murder on the Orient Express, as well as taking you know cues from real historical events. So using a rip-from-the-headlines event as a writing prompt, how do you feel about that? How do I feel about it? 
Yeah. I'm good with it. I mean, uh, Tolstoy did that with War and Peace, right? There yep. was like a battle right outside his window, figuratively speaking, 50 years before he was born. But that's, <laughs> none of that's important. Um, I'm okay with Rip from the Headlines, although I'm looking forward to the, to the latter part of this podcast because I'm not a thousand percent sure which headlines this particular episode was ripped from. Yeah, it's actually pretty close when we get there, but I, I don't want to give it away. Yeah. I actually thought War and Peace was based on that song, War, What Is It Good For? I mean, wasn't that what we learned on Science? I apologize, <laughs> yeah, for 19th century literary <laughs> references, exactly. And, and correct on you for throwing it back in my face. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. okay. We will not let snobbery stand on this crappy podcast. <laughs> this is not a crappy podcast. I've listened to it. It's a good podcast. I drove 14 miles to go come here, so I won't be sold short. Alex, of all the franchises, do you have a favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. I'd have to, well, first of all, Orbach, because my late mother loved Orbach. And I like this team a lot. I, I Tastes vary, but I like uh, Ed Green and, and um, Briscoe and Green is my favorite. I think all of our journalist friends have said that, with the exception of Amber Hunt, who liked uh, uh, Elton. Elton and yeah. <laughs> Elton and the guy from Blackish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, Anthony Anderson. Yeah, I think yeah. he's great. I well, he's like great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I've never heard anyone really stand up for Benjamin Bratt. I mean, who you know, I mean, to have been married to Julia Roberts is like quite an accomplishment, in my, in my view. So I, I always had kind of a soft spot for him. Well, he was were they a, ever married, or were they just engaged? I yeah, I know. No, that's a that's a good fact check. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure, um, but he was sort of like the, the quote unquote the Hispanic one, right? I mean, yes. which yeah. I was the handsome up. Latino. Yes, he was a handsome Latino, and he had trouble at home. I mean, I, my heart went out to him. Let me put it that way. Yeah, you know, he was a fictional character, though, so he, he really didn't have trouble at home. <laughs> Wait, no, he did have trouble. <laughs> Because I devoted a lot of my life to worrying about his trouble at home. In fact, it was very sad about his wife. I, now you guys are just laughing at his misfortune. No, it, no. It, clearly the lines between fact and fiction are blurry for this guest, and I think we should respect that. I can definitely yes. see Alex in his basement weeping over Curtis's wife's MS while somebody's stealing his refrigerator upstairs. He had three daughters, man. <laughs> Thinks it was like a heavy thing. It was a heavy thing. Hey, Alex, do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order, district attorney, prosecutorial team. I like Waterston where he is. I, I, this is a good episode for Fred Thompson as a uh, newly introduced <laughs> DA. Why are you guys laughing? I think you mean Fred Dalton Thompson, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not credit. running for president, pal. <laughs> I can call him what I want. Uh, DA Arthur Branch, this is a good episode. I don't like, he's not my favorite DA, by any, but this is a good episode. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't get want to get too nerdy on you, but we're four into his uh, career here, right? This yeah. is, I believe, only the fourth episode of his, he's a newly uh, elected uh, DA. Uh, he's not my favorite, but he's good in this episode. I, I mean, I'd have to say uh, I'm not a Ben Stone guy. I'm the other guy. I'm the uh, the older guy, the Arthur guy. Oh, okay. The insurance Schiff. guy. The Schiff. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Adam Schiff guy. Yeah. The insurance guy? Did he sell insurance at one Ameritrade, point? Ameritrade. I, I think he did. Yeah, I think he's selling insurance, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> he did well. I liked Adam Schiff. I mean, because he was so world-weary and stuff. Yeah. But this guy's like, okay, and I really didn't like Waterson once he took the job. I, he ceased to interest me. Like, but do you like Waterson as a prosecutor? You I do like, well, yeah, I mean, I... I, I, I I'm committed to lifelong learning. I mean, this is a this is one of those. I, I hadn't realized that Jack McCoy 
to me, he really was a kind of god, you know, a flawless marble statue. But once you start learn more and more about him, this is certainly one of his. I mean, there are chinks in his arm, whatever inappropriate metaphor you want to bring forward. This is a good episode for for people who wrote their PhDs on Jack McCoy, right? Because you get some hints yeah, ab- about yeah. his weaknesses. Yeah. Two, two of them specifically. I I agree. Actually, this is a really interesting prosecutorial episode in a way that many of the Serena Sutherland episodes are not. This is an interesting one. This is a very interesting one. Although, again, I don't want to get too nerdy. I'm, I'm, I'm not the guy, but it, it's, it's <laughs> premonitory. No, I'm not the guy, <laughs> but it's premonitory of Serena Sutherland's final episode. Right? It oh, kind yeah. of is. All right, we'll, we'll get, get there. there. We will get <laughs> there. <laughs> I thought you keep saying that. <laughs> we'll get there. Maybe we won't get there. Oh, we will. We promise. <laughs> All right, now let's look at the first half of the episode, Law & Order, Season 13, Episode 4, Tragedy on Rye. Found in the apartment above a famous Manhattan deli, one Lucy Dolan, struggling actress and musician. Despite her floundering career, her place is packed with high-end accoutrements, including one of them being one of them newfangled flat-screen TVs. (laughs) Doc says a single 357 round to the chest did the trick. Went right through her, right in the middle of lunch, too. Looks like Kung Pao chicken. Yeah, be sure to get back to us on that. A pair of tourists looking to catch a glimpse of a celebrity at the deli get videotape of, quote, three suspicious characters, two of them carrying Lucy's TV, or it could have been Alex's for all we know, <laughs> tracing the license plate. Tracing yeah. the li- tra- oh, my God. <laughs> the same burglars. <laughs> tracing the license plate and a horse track VIP sticker. Briscoe and Green nab the pair who took the TV. The third guy is still at large, and these two have no criminal history. When a high-rolling defense attorney shows up for them, the detectives get an idea. Ed Green, who is the whitest black cop ever on television. Oh, that's so painful. I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, I, I totally disagree, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> he channels his inner gangster and goes to the law office and poses as a friend of the suspect. They learn his name is Danny Odom. Uh, they find Lucy's TV in his apartment. And when Danny walks in on them and reaches for his waistband, Green jumps him and places him under arrest. Okay, let's start right at the beginning. Lex. They, they really, really, really want us to know this is an authentic Jewish deli. This oh, is the uh, Carnegie Deli, Jew. right? It's like it's like the faux Carnegie Deli. They do everything they possibly can with a long shot of like that very fat pastrami sandwich. Uh-huh. Mind the register, boy chick. Mind it. Don't help yourself. But... Ganif. In the first six <laughs> seconds, you get Ganif, Zafdig, Oyve, Boy Chick. <laughs> they have all these, yeah, like air quote Jews they've drafted. And um, go on. It's like it's yeah. like it's like the writers' room was like, guys, how do we telegraph this? How do we telegraph that this is a Jewish deli? And how do we like let people in Wisconsin understand what that means? And yeah, every stereotype yeah. was thrown in in the first thirty seconds of the episode. Okay, if we want this Jewish deli owner. To find the body, what interjection would he use? <laughs> I'm feeling oive. What do you guys? I think yeah? that sounds about right. I think yeah. we can go with oive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got a first off one inaccuracy. I always wanted to learn guitar. It's actually a bass, a Rickenbacker. Is that good? It was good enough for Elvis. Oh, now you're in my neck of the woods. I'm actually talking about Elvis Costello. Who's on first? Of course, we all know that Elvis Costello did not play the bass. No, only you know that. No, it's, <laughs> if it's a Rickenbacker Green, is obviously thinking of Paul McCartney. Yes, but only you 
would know that. I don't think it's an obvious Yeah, and correction. you're kind of stepping on one. They're, they're so proud of that Elvis Elvis joke that you're being almost being unfair to it the It is. Writers. I think yeah. it's also supposed to be like generational, right? That uh, Green yeah. knows something that Briscoe doesn't. And it's also, I think, ironically, even though we just gave you crap for calling Green a super white black cop, <laughs> yeah. I think it is supposed to telegraph a little bit of Green's, quote, whiteness, that he's like... One of the you know people who would know of the difference between Elvis Costello. I mean, that's what I thought. Yeah, that he's, was supposed he's to be. long into new wave. It seemed very music. obvious. Rebecca, if I could do fifteen podcast episodes of you talking about fashion, <laughs> as far as a podcast, I get one Elvis Costello. Fifteen reference. podcast episodes about Mariska Hargitay's makeup and hair. Right <laughs> now, now Alex, the landlord is trying to tell him that the girl. Uh, was an actress in a movie with all that dancing. She was in that movie uh, where all the kids are dancing. Fame? The other one. So what film is he talking about and who else is on that IMDb page? Oh, well, I'm sorry. Do you want me to drop the name of my friend Michael Gore who wrote the score for Fame? Or or is that too early for that? Oh, No, you could do that. Okay, fine. Then I think I'll do that right now. I thought they talk about fame. That's what it is. They, They mention it, but I think they were referring to Dirty Dancing. Were they not? I think they were. And aren't you just now making a like degrees of Kevin Bacon joke when you make that? Who else was on that IMD page? IMDb page reference? Is yeah. that what you're trying to do? I was going to say Jerry Orbach. Oh. Oh my. <laughs> Jerry Orbach put Baby in the Corner in that <laughs> Red movie. Dirty Dancing. Oh. That's yeah. right. How can you take fame away from me? Because they specifically uh, mentioned fame. Fame in the was show. great, but I think I think what it was really going on was is the guy is saying she was in Dirty Dancing, and Green wants to say, "What a coincidence!" So was my partner. <laughs> Oh my. That's right. That's some really good exegesis by you, by That's the way. Very right. impressive. Very impressive. Very, very good. Wow. I, I've... I love any reference to Jerry Orbach's outside career made on this show. Like I when love he plays when, pool or love something. when he plays pool. I love when like he like, calls himself and like, in one episode you're first of all, like as like a song and dance man as a joke. And you're like, that's not a joke. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Greatest ever. <laughs> greatest ever. Now, the tourists from Ohio. Oh, come on, pot kettle. They, <laughs> the racist tourists from Ohio. Look, they are Anti-Semitic so- tourists from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are so green. They don't know who in the deli is a real celebrity, but they do know enough to sell their videotape to a TV station, That's right? right. That's Wait a right. minute, are you going to skip over that kind of edgy line about no. who's in the deli? Honey, shove over. You're blocking the window. I, I got Woody Allen in the crosshairs. You Casey, that's just some other Jew. The silent majority. Should stay that way. Right. That's right. Great, great then, line. Uh, <laughs> Briscoe, I believe, calls them the silent majority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Premonitory, I would say, of, of America in 2018. It's pretty incredible. They're real podunk, but they do, in fact, know they can sell the tape. It's an excellent point, Kevin. It's one I had not thought of. I was so distracted by the blatant anti-Semitism of this couple. <laughs> well, if you didn't know Alex Beam and you couldn't get to you know, a major metropolitan newspaper, immediately you would go to W whatever and That's say, right. I have this videotape. It shows three black guys leaving a building where a murder happened. That's right. How much do you want for it? I, I do enjoy, though, I think it was Briscoe who said they want to put out an APB for three badly dressed, or uh, two badly dressed out-of-towners when they saw them on the video camera. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. With their, like, mom slacks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were great, and they missed their plane. It was very sad. Lieutenant Van Buren made them miss. I mean, That's right. uh, Next plans know, I mean, in four hours, release them in three and a half. Release them in three and a half. <laughs> I, I used to live in New York, man. 30 minutes to get to LaGuardia, I don't think so. Yikes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big problem. Now, you got to remember that these three guys are supposed to be like about like one level above street dealer, yeah. right? On, on the drug 
the drug, you know, hierarchy. Now, unless you are Scarface Kingpin level, why do you have a luxury suite at the horse track? <laughs> Who, I mean, <laughs> who does that? I, wasn't like one of them's uncle, like the owner of a shoe store, like another avenue that was never explored. My assumption was that the box belonged to the uncle of one of those guys, the shoe oh. store owner, maybe. Yeah. Maybe? Precisely. Also, I mean, if it had been the dog track, it might have been a little more <laughs> sort of congruent <laughs> with the facts. But it wasn't like, yeah, anyway. It would, usually you get OTB in Law & Order, but here, here you had the actual thing, which is a real uh, kind of welcome departure. Yeah, somebody with their own car and their special sticker. And actual horses. That's yeah. right. Actual horses. So are we just glossing over like the whole First Amendment issue at play here in the first half of this episode where Serena has to go to court? For prior restraint. To obtain a, the opportunity for the cops to see the tape on which Moe and Curly... <laughs> quote we, are identified. No, wait, are you screaming at the TV, Alex, about near versus Minnesota? And <laughs> no, but that's a, that's a highly highly rare example where not, not only are they attempting a prior restraint on a news organization, which the lawyers all everyone admits is completely out of the question, but second of all, they're successful. That's right. They find a comply a complacent judge. Well, Mr. Willett, is twenty four hours going to put an overly large kink in your colon? That's not the point, Judge. Of course, there's always a chance that I linger over the people's application. My clerk gets lost in Westlaw for a couple of days, and your tape becomes yesterday's news, literally. Are you saying that law and order isn't always accurate in the way it depicts the legal system? It's, yeah. Okay, I think it's 100% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> what I, can I just say what I love about that whole scenario is that they get the tape for 24 hours before mm. the TV station can air it, right? And they're like, yeah. then it'll be yesterday's news, whatever. <laughs> So they are now treating this 24 hours like it is the most critical. It's like it's like, like Kiefer Sutherland totally. is going to be and rushing they, in, right? And they, and they identify <laughs> the dudes, and she's like, "We have just 23 hours to catch them." Like, no, actually, you have as long as you want to catch them. That whole 24 hour thing is arbitrary. It depends on them actually watching what, like WEXR or whatever stupid network bought this thing. It's a fake deadline. It wasn't WPI. I thought it added a lot of immediacy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> urgency. A lot of urgency. Yeah, they, they need to make their case very quickly, which which plays into this other issue that we're going to discuss. Did they perhaps act peremptorily? Maybe. Maybe. But it did lead to that amazing scene of both Briscoe and Green sitting in the parking lot of the racetrack. <laughs> Third race, I got to go with Ed's Pepper. You've got to be kidding. She's a gray. I always bet the gray. And you wonder why you always lose. She's got the inside post. Yeah, man, and the first rule of racing is from the rail to the jail. We do have, I believe, a Hey, It's That Guy. We do? Hey, it's that guy. Who possibly knows the actor who played recurring character crime scene tech Julian Beck? Nope. Nobody, nope. right? No. Okay, well, that is actor John Cariani. Looking for a moment frozen in time. It's almost poetic. <laughs> so what am I doing in DMV, right? You might remember him from the Onion News Networks. His assignment was autistic reporter Michael Falk. Oh, God. <laughs> He's the one who did a story like, train ran over a man, but fortunately the train was not damaged. <laughs> That's right. Oh. This is an actual Law & Order character? I yes. mean, yeah. Different, wow. Very obscure. Yeah. Hey, it's that guy reference, though. Yeah. yeah. Julian Beck, I guess he was in about 20 different episodes, and you get like these guys that go and- Is he the forensics guy who eventually testifies, or is he the DMV guy? He's a DMV guy. Apparently, he has many skills. He can take a <laughs> fingerprint. <laughs> I see. He can, he can figure out traffic cameras. He's not the guy who talks about the palm print on the wall? It's not that guy? That's our old oh. forensics guy. He's, he's, a, he's a recurring character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that scene, actually, when he like demonstrated how the palm print would have gotten in that spot. It was clever. Yeah. 
because you need to pull it off the wall. By the way, Alex, <laughs> did you check the wall near your TV where it was stolen? Oh, stop it. Stop I'm just it. saying, there was probably uh, prints. Uh, 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 How many times in this era of Law & Order has there been a scene where there's a missing flat screen TV? That seems to happen a lot, like when the flat screen TVs were new. Like, that seemed to be well, like a tell, Well, right? said it, it cost, they <laughs> said it cost $6,000. <laughs> where today, at, at, you go to bucks? Best Buy. Yeah, right. yes, that's right. Right. Now, Jesse L. Martin gets to channel his inner stringer bell. Yep. And go undercover as a drug dealer seeking legal representation. There's two brothers enjoying the hospitality of a certain city agency. There are a lot more than two. Yeah, but Mr. Maynard representing these two. Matter of fact, he went by and visited them today at the behest of one of my colleagues. Listen. The yeah. best part about that is that he basically just borrowed Logan's old jacket and like that turned him into like a gangster. <laughs> like Logan yeah. left his jacket Literally, behind. Literally. That's he a did. very lame scene. I actually think as a rule, you guys are frankly a little bit too harsh on LNO. But that is a very lame scene in every because he's chewing gum like a gangsta. Yeah. Like gangsters chew gum. Yeah. Like in what universe do freaking gang and it, yeah, and he has this like leather jacket. Yeah. It's Logan's old jacket and it's supposed to make him look like a criminal. Meanwhile, Logan wore that as a cop. Every day on this damn show, right? And 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 the and the highly naive yet critically attractive African American oh, receptionist. He's gorgeous. She's oh, gorgeous. I thought you were talking about Jesse L. Gray. No, L. no. <laughs> she lets the cat out of the bag. The whole thing is totally improbable. Yeah, totally. Okay, yeah. There's some guy here wants to talk to you. How did how did he pull off the? Um, Let's uh, talk about Danny Odom. Yes. Oh, okay. Dan- Job Dan- done. Check. <laughs> and where did he go? <laughs> poof, there was this little poof of dust, and he was out the door. Yep. I don't know where you he needed went to. to ask also if that was uh, entirely legal. Hmm. What he, that kind of evidence gathering? He was in the. I thought. I thought that was going. He's going to get a rap in the knuckles. But it turns out he got a rap in the knuckles for an actual rap in the knuckles. That's right. Yep. Rebecca, how, how well did uh, Jesse L. Martin slash Ed Green pull off being a uh, gangster? It's far too gorgeous for that. Next question. Yeah, far too <laughs> white for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he listens to Elvis Costello and the Attraction, so. <laughs> yeah. Now, have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Let's look at the second half of this episode. All three defendants have their own lawyers, but it's Danny Odom's attorney who's running the show. Their story is that Lucy was dealing drugs and owed Danny money. He took the TV as collateral, and the murder happened after they left. Also, they filed a civil rights suit against Green, saying the black cop racially profiled the black defendant when he injured him during the arrest. The civil suit is just leverage against the state, so new DA Arthur Branch counters with a press conference. The people of this city owe these officers a debt of gratitude. It is the conclusion of this office, based on the particular circumstances of this crime and the overwhelming evidence of guilt, that the death penalty, although very rarely sought in this county, is appropriate. The civil suit is dismissed after a neighbor testifies he heard Green identify himself as a cop. But Branch says they'll still proceed with the death penalty, even for the two who only stole the TV. McCoy and Sutherland are shocked, not used to their conservative boss, which is surprising because we all know he must have campaigned literally on a platform of, quote, <laughs> law and order. <laughs> 
At trial, the defense uses cell phone traffic patterns to establish Lucy sold drugs. At closing, they argue the state is pursuing the defendants just because they're black, but the jury convicts all three anyway. McCoy reexamines Lucy's phone records and noticed one number stopped calling after she was killed, but before she was discovered. Briscoe and Green find the murder weapon and bust that guy instead. The defendants are released, and even though he nearly sent three innocent men to death row, Branch says, come on, guys, steak dinner's on me. <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> okay, let's try not to get too deep into the thicket of racial politics here, where we have three- uh, The show didn't. Why should we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about Green's reaction to hearing he's being sued in federal court? Odom names the city, the department, and you individually in his suit. He claims you profiled him. Right. He's a drug dealer and a murderer. And he's black. Have you looked at me recently? Yeah. No, it was interesting because I think the quandary that it presents us as viewers is that we actually saw the takedown, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, like, you know I am like a justice-minded person, but that was fair. They didn't kick him extra when he was down. They took the guy down, put his arms behind his back because he looked like he was reaching for a gun. The viewer could see. He was reaching for a gun. So it was interesting to me that Van Buren's reaction was to, like, take them into her office. And, you know, when she says shut the door, it's like they are in trouble. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Because it was the viewer is presented with, like, a relatively clean arrest and a fair arrest. And then, you know, we're supposed I don't know if we're supposed to ask the question. Did Green? I don't think we are supposed to ask the question. Did Green do anything wrong? Right. We're not supposed to ask that question. Well, it's, it didn't look like a particularly rough takedown. Uh, certainly, but it was taken very, very. It, 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 they'd given away a chess piece, alas, mm-hmm. and so then they had to counter with the idea of putting everyone up against the wall and shooting them, which was kind of an, a very powerful counter move. It was um, insane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, so it served the episode well. But they, yeah, they kind of dispatched this whole like plot twist pretty quickly, very quickly. Almost, well, suspiciously, but I mean, it is a very rich episode because uh, Sutherland has to go into the CPA and threaten him uh, totally inappropriately with putting him out of business. It's like leverage, 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 leverage. Unless he testifies, she says, well, he says, well, the the black guys basically are going to kill me if I testify against them. She says, yeah, well, I'll take away your license and you'll never work in this town or any other town for that matter. So uh, she's a tough gal and I'm not sure that's exactly legal either. Yeah, but wasn't it interesting though when Van Buren went to confront branch and it was clearly like the first time they'd ever had like a face-to-face mm-hmm. one-on-one and she basically went there to tell him like you know what my problem is if we fry Carden and johnson the next time my officers find themselves in a similar situation the bad guys may just shoot to kill what the hell they'd be facing the death penalty anyway you want to talk next time what about the next time three punks hit a 7-eleven you want the two without the gun to get a pass when their buddy blows the cashier's face off that's not the message I want to send for all the next times. It was a super interesting scene that got weird fast. And, like, there was a little bit of, like, him putting her in her place, which I think as a viewer we're supposed to realize, like, this guy's going to be a problem for all of our liberal-minded cop friends. Yeah. Now, Alex, <laughs> what Van Buren said when she went to Branch was that she was afraid if he goes ahead with this gambit that what will happen is that the bad guys are going to shoot first and ask questions later when it comes to cops. Right. She's worried about losing cops. If if the bad guys are under kind of a, a blanket threat of getting the needle, getting and as one as as uh, Sutherland says, you know, they walked away with the television set and now they're on they're going to be 
face capital punishment. Van Buren's very concerned about that. That's a very strange scene, frankly. I can't really imagine a, a detective lieutenant engaging the district attorney of uh, Manhattan County. And, you know, and he, he says to her, well, I'm trying to save one of your cops, which, again, sounds like a very unusual kind of motive for that district attorney. And she says kind of, I wish you wouldn't save my cops so much as I wish you wouldn't put all these black people to death. Right. Now, there is obviously a new sheriff in town with Branch. Yep. He's a conservative cast in Fred Thompson's own image. Now, for this era of law and order, the conflict is no longer Adam Schiff kind of humming and hawing with the skepticism at McCoy's dubious interpretations of the law. It's now about political views. Right. Putting somebody to death for stealing a television is reprehensible. Ah, vox clamatus from the moral left. A death sentence for Carton or Johnson would be cruel and unusual punishment. Only it seems to me we've got enough evidence for two cases on this one. The only thing we don't have is a busload of nuns as eyewitnesses. I mean, am I wrong? Do we know these punks are guilty or don't we? They're guilty, but Arthur, are you sure this is the best case for you to prove a point? You don't like to be sandbagged. I don't like the race card thrown in my face. Hey. Well, you've got to admit you're not the typical New York City district attorney. Now, for these five seasons that we have Fred Thompson, does that kind of tension serve the law and order storytelling well? What do you think, Alex? Um, I really would have to defer to the two of you guys because I think you probably know the canon of Fred Thompson more deeply than I do. Um, he, you know, here he 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 is a lawmaker in this episode, which is highly unusual. He, he views himself as sort of you know judge, jury, etc., and he quotes himself very pompously. You know. <laughs> I think it's so good when he does that. Now, if he does that for five seasons, uh, and I. I suppose he does. I mean, that, that's that's I, it's basically BS. And, and he's not my favorite DA, as I said in the beginning. Well, he it, for me is like an opportunity for the cast, the cast of, uh, you know, the legal team on the show, the prosecutors in particular, to discuss the ethics of what's happening actually out in the world. I mean, what year was this episode? I think 2004. Right. I think. This is like this is like the post 9-11, you know, uh, George W. Bush era, uh, the, all of the Patriot Act laws, which really shaped a lot of the criminal justice stuff that was hap- that's really still happening in America now. And this is the show's way of dealing with it, is putting like a substitute, you know, conservative in the boss spot on the show so they get to have these debates in the script. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's to me, as much as I loved, I think I'm like the only one like loved Diane Weist as like the temporary <laughs> oh, DA. Well, yeah, she's great. She's yeah. so like sweet and she's so soft in, in, in her sort of approach to everything and so liberal in her approach to everything that it was really unrealistic like in a lot of cases. And there is a huge unrealistic thing that what happens. What does Branch mean in this episode when he says, I don't like having the race card played. Yes. He's basically he saying, like, you're calling me a racist because I call, put, you know, put these kids on in a death penalty case. But then he also calls them out on, and them calling him a carpetbagger because he's like a lifelong New Yorker. He's been in New York for what, decades at you this point? You said 30 years. I thought 20. 20, 30. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter. He's still a carpetbagger. He's always going to be a carpetbagger. <laughs> that is a totally recognizable political talking point. I mean, just to, let's talk about right now. I mean, I you know we don't like to get too political on the show, but let's talk about the fact 
fact that like right now, a lot of people on the conservative side of politics will say, don't politicize, in quotes, race, as if the civil rights movement and politics had nothing to do with one another. It's a popular talking point, I think. I know, but I'm confused how Branch is playing this. He's being accused of railroading three young black guys, right? But he seems okay with that. He has a Southern accent. So that's, I found it all a little counterpuntal for me. Um, because I couldn't – he refers to his own motives um, as electoral in nature. Right. But so then I, I'm okay. I'm actually politically a little bit conservative. So, I mean, for me, that's the real world. That's how you get elected DA uh, in, in, in a lot of districts, you know, is, is railroading young black kids, right? And we, can't, we built a republic on that. Or should I be not be saying that? Well, I think that it's not inaccurate. So I think <laughs> no, it's fair to no, say. No, I mean, I'm yeah. afraid it's not. So, But I think it, it, to, to kind of close the loop on this thought – that what we used to have with Schiff was the tension of, I don't want you doing this crazy Hail Mary legal argument. Right. It's got to be Whereas constitutional. Now it's, where now it's like, we want to zig, and Branch says, no, we're going to zag. Yeah. Yes. And I happen, you've made it clear for me, and the, the word we're not using is conscience. I thought Schiff, again, my favorite, Schiff was kind of the conscience, right, of, mm-hmm. of the legal profession and of the office, and so much older. He was kind of their super ego slash con- conscience. And D- Dalton Thompson's off on another jag entirely. <laughs> now, Sutherland is struggling with this whole death penalty issue. She tells this story about walking home from midnight mass. And all the way home, the only thing I could think about was what's wrong with me. Why aren't I like all of those people who actually believe the words that they're singing? Maybe it was the eggnog your Uncle Harry slipped you. My point is right now I'm more convinced than ever that this job would be a lot easier if I was one of those people from St. Bart's. At least then, making a decision about taking a man's life wouldn't be so excruciating. So it took 60 more episodes to get there, but it is a little foreshadowing of her dismissal from the district attorney's office. Now, you, she didn't say she didn't be, wanted to be as good as they did. She said she wanted to believe. She, you know, she Not that she wanted uh, to. She, she always knew she wouldn't be the kind of person who could believe what they were talking about in the church, that she wasn't getting anything from it. She didn't believe. Yeah, that's another confusing message because it was the certainty that she referred to because then they confused the whole thing by pointing out that true believing Christians, again, which I sort of am, uh, you know, oppose the death penalty. But she was that's that wasn't what she was relating to her church experience. No, she was, I think, just talking about the sort of blind faith in the system because in that same scene— uh, very shortly after that is when she calls Jack a cop out because he says the reason this doesn't bother me that we're going for this death penalty thing is he invites her for like a drink and she's like nope which by the way maybe that's foreshadowing too but that's another topic uh, but she but he you know he says it doesn't bother me because that's why we have judges and that's why we have juries who trust the system and she's like that's a cop out and I'm like. She actually does believe something, right? Yeah. She believes that the death penalty. Yeah, I mean, and and there's there's the c word again, conscience. And uh, I mean, I I know where you're going with that foreshadowing, but it's but it's only like about a minute and a half later that he then asks, he offers her a cab ride home, and she says, "quote I'd rather walk." Yeah. So he, she she twice uh, rejects, pushes back. She I think, does. I think is she the does. term we're looking for <laughs> yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, but, but of course later she gets fired because she is an advocate and not a. Um, She's accused of being an advocate, not accused a prosecutor. Of being a, yeah. Yes. But we know it's actually. Is this because 
because I'm a lesbian. Oh, I can't believe you said that. What about all the people who are waiting to see that amazing episode? Oh, please. we spoil it? I think we've talked about that about a hundred times on this podcast, that that amazing scene where Arthur Branch says, you're fired, and she says, is it because I'm a terrible actress? (laughs) That's more like Oh, no. You guys are too cruel. She's a great actress. There you have it. You are a Christian. Uh, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, of course he gets his conviction, but McCoy just can't stop looking at the evidence. As we know prosecutors do, yeah. right? After they get a win, yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, they wait. keep trying to lose. They have right. second thoughts. They're scratching their heads. <laughs> oh, yeah. this just wasn't this wasn't just a slam dunk. It kind of went around the rim a little bit. Yeah, we and... know. Prosecutors hate winning. They right. just hate it. So he comes up with this. He says, hey, there is this one guy who stopped calling. So he must have known that she was dead. That's probable cause. Kick in that door. Yeah. This is like they have how many lawyers on that side of the room? Like three high paid, high profile lawyers over there right now. Okay, then if you want to get down in the racial gutter with me, not with that so that the door they choose to kick in is is like this manatee sized black man <laughs> basically like wallowing in an ocean of cocaine <laughs> and firearms. He's like the you know the black Al Pacino. <laughs> so you ha- in other words, they, they could just have guilty just sort of right on top of the screen. That's right. After having all of these quasi sensitive racial conversations on the show you know, basically they bust into the most stereotypical black drug dealer's house in the history of the show. So McCoy fixes the mistake like he always does. He's, well, we convicted the wrong guys. So I'll go get, fill out the paperwork, get him released. Yes, Branch, who has just given a lofty press conference many times over <laughs> about how he wants to fry these young boys, can't wait now yeah. to release them. He's like, well, I have that form. It's right in my top drawer. I'm always <laughs> pulling it out. <laughs> fill out the paperwork. Yeah. yeah, great. It's already pre-signed. I just have to put the date in at the top. Oh, there we oh, go. Oh, man. It was really unbelievable. We all know, I mean, anybody who follows criminal justice cases at all, which, of course, we do, um, even when it's known that somebody is innocent or was wrongfully convicted, it can still be, what, like years? They're not admitting it at all. No. 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 You know, that was a great moment in the night of. I don't know if you discussed that on your other podcast, but remember, they actually go through, they know they've got the wrong guy, but there, they're faithful to the prosecutorial ethic. Mm -hmm. They they convict the wrong guy, and then they go back, they, they fail to convict, but they try to convict the wrong guy and then the ne- the very next thing is he goes to the prosecutor and says now let's go get the right guy and put right. him behind bars yeah yeah that happens all the time <laughs> okay okay <laughs> have you heard sling tv offers the news you love for less hey wait you look and sound just like me i am you i'm the same news programs on sling tv for less you mean you're me but for less money a lot less I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money, which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Well, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know. 
But you don't know who did it You don't know who did it Rip from the headlines This episode is based on a deadly stick-up that came to be known as the Carnegie Deli Massacre, a marijuana operation that catered to famous musicians who was being run out of an apartment above the famous New York City eatery. The dealer was Jennifer Stahl, an actress who had a bit part in the movie Dirty Dancing. In May 2001, right in the middle of a theatre crowd rush, two men were seen entering the building. Stahl was entertaining four friends when the intruders barged in. They shot all five people execution-style and ran off with $1,000 and six ounces of pot. Despite the shots of the head, two of the victims survived and were able to telephone the police. The next day, authorities announced their suspects were Andre Smith and Sean Sally. Smith turned himself in, but Sally wasn't nicked by the coppers until his picture showed up on America's Most Wanted. Fears of the shooting signalled a return to Times Square's dodgy days never came to pass. Smith and Sally were both sentenced to 25 years to life. After 80 years in operation, the famous Carnegie Deli closed on New Year's Eve 2016. Okay, well, sure enough, the victim had been in Dirty Dancing Wow. with Jerry Orbach. Now that's a detail I did not know. Do you think this is where Jerry Orbach got all his weed? <laughs> oh, oh. Was Jerry a hophead? You can't back that up. No, I can't back you that up no at all. You have no foundation, as they were, say on Law & Order. If he were. Do you think he pitched this story? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know what make this really, really realistic? No, Jerry, what? Well, the guy you arrest could have been a teacup from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But I don't know. I wonder if Jerry Orbach, you know, when they were filming this, had insight. I mean, this was somebody he worked with, right? Yeah. Well, you're in New York. You spent a lot of time in New York. It I looks did. like that they filmed at the actual Carnegie Deli. Am I wrong? <laughs> I don't know. You're dead I haven't wrong. been to the Carnegie Deli. That's not lucky? No? No, no. I've been to Carnegie Deli plenty of times. Yeah, it didn't. It certainly this didn't. Some, I was some just... Deli with photos on the wall? I'm wrong? I yeah. got that mixed up it with some It looks like a deli. restaurant. It didn't look like a deli. Yeah, it was some interior they found. Yeah, in, the Carnegie Deli is a little more like. It's, it's more stylish. Yeah. Really. Has black has black mahogany, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. So I definitely would not have they definitely would have said, Oh yeah, that was a really great time in our history. Come in and shoot here and remind everybody about the shooting upstairs. <laughs> no. They they make so much more money in like twenty minutes than they would ever let yeah, Law and they have order franchises, come in. you know. We went to the Carnegie Deli in Las Vegas, remember? Yeah. In the Mirage Hotel. Yes, yeah. Where they in fact I believe had when we went a newspaper article about the Carnegie Deli massacre, like framed in the fake Carnegie Deli. So I guess the, the pain had worn off in <laughs> Vegas by that so. time. Oh, man. Well, there are three Carnegie Deli locations in Manhattan, and the, the big one, the famous one, is the one that closed mm-hmm. last year. And right. I guess the other two are still in operation, if Wikipedia is correct. Well, which it often is. Good to know you've done your I've research, done research and yeah. your fact checking in front of this esteemed journalist we have as a guest. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Don't lay on the mustard quite so thick, okay? Well, for a deli, yeah. Yeah. You'd want to end a little horseradish with it as well. Now, we recently had the episode about the Puerto Rican Day Parade riots and now the Carnegie Deli Massacre. And these were in this, that happened in New York in this area um, post gentrification, pre 9 11. So this little sliver of time that the, crime, the real life crime, the real did. life. Right. These both of those real life crimes happened in 2001. Right. In, the, in 2000, 2001. And it's it's like for New Yorkers in that time, there was this sort of fear, at least as it was in the portrayed in the newspapers that, 
oh, we knew it. Times Square is going to go back to being uh, yeah. the way it was. Yeah. And we, this couldn't have lasted. All these horrible crimes are going to happen and the city's going to be unsafe again. Right. As somebody who was, I'm sure, a newspaper man. Well, you, were, you were working for the magazines at that, right? Yeah, but I, it's a, I was in New York in the 70s. Oh, okay. okay when oh. things were really dangerous. It was a well, real okay, shithole. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe you said that. Oh, no. I'm quitting. <laughs> but that's what people were afraid of. They have There were a lot of people who still have that image in their mind right. of, you know, New York go to hell or drop dead or whatever Jerry Ford apparently yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. And so that they seemed like, oh, no, this uh, boy, those were really good times. Right. But uh, it's it obviously isn't going to last. No, I mean, I can't imagine like running into a New Yorker today and talking to them and asking them whether or not they think the gentrification will last. I mean, the city has changed. I mean, growing up, you know, right outside of the city and going to the city in my entire young life. It has changed monumentally, and there is just – I don't think there's fear it's going to change back. I don't anymore. Which is kind of sad, actually. But <laughs> in, there, there, there is, there is like one like, little weird thing that happens in this episode that feels post-9-11. Yeah. Um, is all of the photography on the alleged traffic cameras used. You know, she for some uh-huh. reason, the model slash actress slash comedian – had all of her traffic tickets in her locker at work, which is a strange detail. Yeah, right. One of them, I guess she got right in front of her own house. Yeah, which... that was a really big clue. Oh, look at this. <laughs> yeah. Her car was in front of her house. I simply <laughs> didn't understand anything about that. Yeah, it but made... it's, that seemed almost post-9-11. There'd be all this surveillance, mm-hmm. which I don't remember ever like being the case in New York in that period of time. Yeah, and they had really good pixel resolution. Really good. Yeah. On the uh, rental car. Keep zooming in, <laughs> yeah. zooming in, zooming Things in. happened very quickly. Well, You can't even do that with your like 20 megapixel like camera. You no. can't zoom in that That's, far. Well, it has to be mounted and steady. Otherwise, it's, you can get a little bit of a blur. <laughs> Alex, yes. what do you think of the idea of the, the broken window theory, which is you know this where gentrification in the Giuliani years, where this all kind of comes from? Well, you know, there's a, we're living now, there's a big backlash against the broken window theory, which comes actually out of Boston, comes out of the Kennedy School at Harvard. And Bill Bratton, uh, w- who was deputy in New York, then went to Boston to be the chief of police, where he implemented broken window. I'm not a big expert on this. I mean, now, uh-huh. now people hate it. They see it as a fig leaf for, for racism. But, of course, practically all criminal justice in America is sort of a fig leaf for racism. But these white guys at the Kennedy School dreamed up this broken window thing. And the, the idea, and I'm sure practically everyone listening to this understands it, is that you know if you fix you fix small things in neighborhoods, and if you address small elements, like Giuliani famously went after the squeegee guys, who right. I remember quite well, who really really weren't criminals at all; they're just hustlers, you know. And anyway, the idea is, that, yeah, if you if you can clean up small things, then. You know, white people like me in nineteen the 1970s, you know, these horrible white people will come in and feel cool about living in a place and yeah. gentrify it. And, you know, um, Starbucks comes right right in. Yeah. And then you get Michael Brown, who's selling loose cigarettes on the street and another small thing that they tried to fix and they killed him. Right. It only took 11 policemen to do I mean, that was like so weird. It's like surrounded by policemen. Yeah, but these are the stop and frisk is a consequence of the broken window. I mean, all of these criminal justice things are, you know, a lot of the episodes of this show that we talk about are you can tie directly to cracking down on the little things and it it turning into big injustice. Yeah. And the idea that like this is going to be the tipping point where we're going to slide backwards. One of these tabloid crimes is going to bring back the battle days. I think post 9-11, it's kind of quaint because that is not the fear that we have about Times Square is that all of a sudden all the you know, there's going to be pimps out 
on Times Square. In fact, I think probably the the big fear we have is that you're going to get goosed by Elmo. Oh, yeah. You're going to get forced to pay 20 bucks for a picture with fake Wonder Woman. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Some horrible Japanese next to you. It could be worse. <laughs> well, that is going to do it for us. want to thank our guest, Alex Beam. Alex, where can our listeners follow you? Follow me. I, my my website, where I don't even bother to pay the hosting fees. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a start. <laughs> Amazon, where they can buy my books, like for like a dollar five or something. You know, whatever. Just or Boston Globe. Of pick course. up a copy of the Boston pick Globe up, every Monday. I'm there ranting about humble something. brag. Humble yeah. brag. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? Oh well, you can listen to one of my many podcasts, uh, Crime Writers <laughs> on uh, HGTV and Me, or follow me on Twitter at Reb. Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded live in front of a studio audience. (laughs) And is produced by Partners in Crime Media. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.